Thank you for investing your time in a Duncan's From the Field podcast series. We hope you are getting a ton of value from each episode. On this podcast, Duncan has a great conversation with Kurt Steinhorst, best-selling author of Can I Have Your Attention? They dive deep into how to overcome distraction and reclaim your focus. To learn more about Kurt Steinhorst, his strategies for communication, and his new book, Can I Have Your Attention? Visit KurtSteinhorst.com. Hello, everybody. This is Duncan McPherson with Pareto Systems. And I am thrilled to have Kurt Steinhorst join me for an interesting conversation about how to, to quote Kurt, cultivate focus, which Kurt, by the way, is a phrase I've never heard before. So I do want you to drill down into that. But I have to say, uh, I was given your book, uh, Can I Have Your Attention? And, you know, I, I held the book candidly and thought, okay, here's another book. But as I started reading, uh, I quickly came to the realization that you've carved out a really interesting niche. And I think for a financial professional, uh, with their, you know, such intense noise competing not only for the advisor's attention, but also their client's, client's attention, this is a pretty timely message. So first of all, welcome. Thank you for carving out the time. And uh, why don't you just give us a little bit of your background and then sort of have that cascade into explaining what cultivating focus means. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Duncan. I'm very excited to be here and to have this fun conversation around distraction and attention and focus. Uh, my, my background, I studied undergrad and graduate studies in communication and how technology changes the way we communicate and then jumped into a generational research firm studying the impact of demographics on uh, buying decisions and how we get along and why we can't get millennials off their phones. <laughs> and from there, uh, really, my emphasis found over and over again this question and frustration and challenge around um, why we can't focus on anything because we're so inundated with all of the communication volume coming at us. And so that started this journey that was uh, in part um, professional and academic, but also in part personal as someone who was diagnosed with ADD as a kid, believe it or not, which is really ironic that I speak and write and study and consult on focus with someone who has a condition that says they can't. Um, one of the fun parts of my job, I suppose. And so, you know, at, at its core, when you ask the question, what, is, what, do we, what, what does it mean to cultivate focus? We, we study another unique term, the science of attention. So how and um, in what ways do we, what helps make the decisions for us as to what gets our attention? How do we do a better job of shaping our space and our teams and um, our work in order to uh, create focus around what matters? Okay, well, that's excellent. And I, I, first of all, can't agree with you anymore around the whole signal to noise ratio. Um, 
it's interesting. I've often asked somebody on an airplane uh, sitting beside me who's been either on their e-reader or waiting for the door to close so we can take off and they're scrolling through uh, whether it's their Twitter feed or whatever it is they're reading and ask them, how much of what you've just read do you actually recall, like that you've retained? Because I've actually seen or, or read that it's not untypical for a person to have scrolled through 300 feet of information on their phones or uh, tablets in a given day. And yet the retention of what they've gone through has been so minimal. So what have you seen in your experience around that signal to noise ratio? And what is your approach to get people to focus on what matters? Yeah, and, and there, so you know, there's other mechanisms we can use to see just how much people are consuming. Uh, you can consume as many as 1,500 posts if you're on Facebook any regular amount of time in a single day. Uh, people on average in the corporate world and across North America, uh, if you have a white-collar job, are consuming about 500% the amount of information as someone in 1990 would be consuming which would be really awesome if only for the fact that we can't process it, right? We have a limited capacity. And especially when you're looking at things like Twitter um, or even emails the same way, uh, a large amount of information that does not connect to one another uh, makes it nearly impossible to actually process. And, you know, there's a couple challenges here. So on the one hand, it's, it's like candy, right? We, 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 we go through it and we eat it, we eat it, we eat it, but we, it doesn't give us any nutritional value, but it still is alluring. And then on the other hand, um, we, we continue to buy into the myth that we still have a problem with information, as in uh, if I just had one more piece of information, then I could make a better decision. And you know, all of the technology out there, which has eliminated any boundaries, uh, what it has done is it has given us this illusion that um, in a world where everything is infinitely available, that somehow we should have the capacity to be infinite as well. And so we, we speed up because technology speeds up, and we, unfortunately, um, we aren't recognizing the limits of our own attention. And so really, when you ask the question, like, what is it you can actually do about this? How do we change it? Because nobody has to be convinced that we have a problem. And in financial services, it's perhaps you know, one of the two or three biggest industries that we see this problem. Um, the question is, how do we create realistic parameters and boundaries that, uh, that encompass the way that the human brain is wired to be curious and like new and interesting things without um, causing us to enter into this overload period where we lose the ability to assess importance, we lose the ability to um, actually process and make use of what is available and out there. Well, that's interesting. And you're right. I mean, it's a bit of a paradox. I mean, there's unlimited access to information and knowledge. But what people are really craving is wisdom. And so you think about, you know, your analogy of diminishing returns and consuming candy. You know, and by the way, speaking of paradox, I love what you said about you, know, you 
being self-aware about some of your own attention issues and yet becoming an expert on attention. I mean, it's like me, I tell somebody how to run their business and I had a business that almost failed. Like it's a little bit uh, counterintuitive and yet having a window on uh, some of these experiences means you're not operating from a theoretical construct. I mean, this is bona fide information. Um, now, you, you and I have spoken at at least one conference together. Yes. So, so what? Okay, so you're you're one of your addressable audiences. It's fun, the financial services space. Where do you go in a presentation? What are you telling someone to do? And then what's the takeaway? So when you're done speaking and they head back to their office, what can they do with your information? Yeah, because it's only as useful as we can put it to use, right? Otherwise, it's just part of the noise. Right. You know, so I, I think that, that some of it is um, – important to differentiate between tips and tricks and um, uh, what we have to understand about a shift in framework and understanding. And so you know, when, when we think about and approach financial advisors, really the question that we're asking is what is the value proposition for a world where um, the client, not only are they shifting and they have a lot of available in terms of information, but robo-advisors, we have to just be honest about like the role that technology is playing in the um, the automation of this industry, right? And so right. You know, the good news is what attention can help us do is is it can help us understand when we when we see what people will give their attention to, when we see what um, creates challenges around. Um, and I'll, actually, let me back up a second and just say, you know, at the end of the day, attention is given. It's the brain selection process of what matters in a given instance in a given space. So it's at any moment I can look at a hundred things thousand little infinite things that are available, infinite items, but I can only select a very, very small number. And it's the brain saying, before we're usually conscious of it, like, this is what matters, right? And so it's a selection process. Now, um, with that said, the question is, how do we as advisors make sure that we are only presenting the information that people actually understand it? Um, to, to help overcome the distractions and confusions that come with all the volume. So um, distraction is confusion about what matters. That's what it is. This attention selection about what matters, distraction is confusion about it. And we, you know, what we see over and over again is that often in, um, in an attempt to keep up with the information overwhelm, um, advisors will, will actually exacerbate the problem or ignore the realities by um, either sharing, just dumping information to show they're an expert, or actually wanting to um, <laughs> like hide and shield information because that seems it could be against, um, it might reveal other, uh, others are better options. And so what we've learned, and like if I were to say what the big takeaway is, is that um, we, we've always used people to filter out what matters and the key is how do we make sure that as an expert that we have um, – that the people who are our clients see us as their people, that they we, – we offload our ability to make sense of this because we know it's overwhelming and we need someone's help. So it's how do we create trust so that we can basically take 
over that section that is overwhelming and isn't that they can't make sense of? Well, first of all, and I, I love what you said uh, about robo and how the digital has added so much to the noise and AI, right? The artificial intelligence. And of course, what can decommoditize a fee-for-service professional is a real focus on the EI, right? The emotional intelligence. So not just managing money, but managing people and managing a business that creates a client experience. Um, and, and you're so very right. I mean, so many advisors, and you've seen this too, they kind of press with their data dump trying to impress somebody. And they end up sort of talking about talking about things instead of understanding that communication is a process. Yeah. And there are, there are, um, uh, for lack of a better term, there are rules of engagement to be an effective communicator. One of which I believe is uh, permission marketing, which means you you say something with brevity, you get to the point quickly, you leave them wanting more, and then you're led by the other person's permission when they ask you questions and they ask you and they give you permission to go deeper. So I guess my question there is, Kurt, are you process driven when, when you engage with somebody to help them become a better communicator? Yeah, so it's interesting. The lens through which we think about it is um, the way we are we're asking the question when it comes to like the way you're communicating to to clients is uh, really around the nature of. Um, let me let me try this again. So I want to I'll back up and and answer it uh, on the back end. One of the primary mechanisms for all of history that the brain has used for selecting what matters, for what gets our attention, is in the context of a cohesive community, meaning that um, we existed in a group, and the uh, actually the, neuro, uh, the neuroscientific term for this is shared attention or joint attention. So literally, we're in a group of people, we're all living together, and we, are, we say, okay, this is worth our attention, and then every individual gives their individual attention to something for the good of what we all agree on what matters. Like that's how it's always worked in all of history, right? We've always um, let a community guide what was worth their attention. Well, today we now live in this fragmented network of connections where we try to reach out and say, here, um, um, and we want to grab everyone's attention, right? Like, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. So we send lots of emails, we, we send lots of messages, and we're screaming, pay attention to me. But the people we've always paid attention to are the people that we say are our people, that we agree on what matters, and that we will um, – and in that relationship, we'll actually uh, – we will preserve one another's attention, so why I'm saying this is we're very process-oriented in the sense that we want to be very limited in the amount of information we share. We want to be very limited in wasting others' attention because we want to make sure that they always know that, one, we agree on what matters most. Um, number two, we preserve and respect your attention. And number three, like we are, um, we're only going to direct your attention to the things that are really, really worth it, and we're going to do it in a way 
that will um, make it very clear in the visuals and the limited number of words, because otherwise what we're doing is we're asking them to do the work, which is an unreasonable thing, given how much they have coming at them. And how much of the recipient, like when, when, it's, a, when it's a business development form of communication, client acquisition, mm -hmm. client retention, uh, striving to create advocacy, how much, is there any science around how much is you conscious know, versus subconscious to the recipient? You know, so clarify the conscious versus unconscious. I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm going to make sure I engage that. Well, it, it's, I can, I can only think of this from personal experience, but I mean, I've been in conferences and I've been on the phone and I've been engaged in conversations on a, on a business level. And it seems somewhat random in terms of what I retain. So maybe that's, indicative of my own learning abilities or listening abilities, but some things stick and resonate long after the communication and others don't. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out why, and I, I don't yeah. have a window on that. Yeah. Okay. So great, great question. And it's complex. We are complex, but it really, it, it centers around uh, a couple of, uh, a couple of major principles. One would be what we would call uh, the novelty familiarity paradox, meaning that you're going to zoom in and really pay attention to something that's surprising, interesting, unexpected. So surprise, novelty, new. So, oh, I've never heard that before. That's one place. The other is actually on the opposite end, that the more we have systems and structures and the more familiar we are with a principle or an idea, the more we're gonna naturally find ourselves going back to it and retaining it. So it's our past experience will say either, hey, this is something I've heard enough that my brain has been primed for it, I have a system for it, and my, or two, this is so different that now like, I have to make sense of it. And, and you know, even deeper is, is um, the more we are aware that this thing, if I don't pay attention, if I don't remember to it, will either, um, well, it will kill me or it's dangerous. Like, so there's survival involved or it will help me in a unique way thrive. Um, those are the categories. So it's all on these edges, right? It's novel, um, familiar. It's uh, gonna kill me, gonna make my life amazing. So if it's not on the edges, it's highly unlikely that we're gonna remember most of it. Right, right. Well, uh, it's kind of a leading question. My The, the first, and, and I'm sure I know the answer, but I'd like to hear it from you. So mastering this, both the ability to amp up one's own ability to have better attention, but also to communicate so that they're getting the recipient's attention more effectively, that is a learned skill. That's not innate. That's something somebody can develop. Absolutely. Yeah, it, there, everyone comes with a baseline. So my brother-in-law is a rocket scientist. He can, you know, read. <laughs> he can sit. He brings uh, graduate-level physics books. He's triple PhD, and he reads thousands of pages of books without looking up. I, on the other hand, as a young kid, my parents said I wouldn't sit still. So there's a baseline that we have, but we're all moving one direction or the other, and and it's just a series of small things. The more we practice 
um, flipping back and forth. Multitasking is what people often call that between different ideas. The more we, you know, um, watch TV while having a second device in our hand, which nine out of 10 people in North America, that's what we do. Um, the more we need new and novel stimulus, the less we're able to zoom in in any direction. Okay, interesting. And I'm sure it does have a lot to do with the mindset of the recipient on the receiving edge, uh, receiving end. I mean, when I talk to my clients, uh, I talk about the distinction between the message and the messenger. Yeah. So the message has to, has to be crafted deliberately. You can't wing it. It can't be a stream of consciousness. But the messenger has to work on specific elements around their, their pace, their inflection, their tonality, and other uh, if you think of the art and science of communication, it, it's more that's more artistic. Um, but I, I just wanted to verify, and I'm sure you've got some tremendous success stories because uh, you've been doing this for a while now. Um, have you, have yeah. you seen some before and after that was pretty startling? Yeah, it was interesting. So the communication piece and the message and the messenger, like I'll just add an attention layer to that, which is, you know, if you think about it, distraction, confusion about what matters. So a confusion of signals. At this moment, I can't figure out what matters. And, and you know, so what happens when we're communicating is, number one, um, if we think attention is given what matters, if, if I am supposed to be communicating with my client, but I am um, finding myself distracted, meaning I'm flipping over to my phone, I'm looking elsewhere, I'm not fully there, then my, literally my body language is sending conflicting signals about what matters right now. Uh, in fact, I, when we work with financial advisors, one of our number one, it seems really basic, but it's, it's if you want to differentiate in today's market, differentiate by being someone who gives your full undivided attention to your to your client like literally that means um from a space standpoint creating space beforehand to close up we call it clearing the clutter or minding the gaps like close up beforehand prepare like what are the ideas that you want to give their make sure get their attention then being fully there uh, it's actually an incredible financial advantage because you're saying you're worth my attention right? That you're worth all of my attention. And by the way, um, being offended when they are distracted is actually one of the worst things you can do. So we want to say you have total, you have, uh, you know, you have a lot coming at you. And I understand that, but I'm also fully here for you. And, and so, yeah, we've seen, um, you know, our general philosophy when it comes to the attention getting side is that anyone who thinks that they operate at a permanent baseline um, in the way they communicate and try to get others' attention is is really just limiting themselves because by instead saying I'm going to be fully present and I'm going to make sure I'm aligned here, my nonverbal say the same thing as my voice says the same things as the words that are saying. Uh, what you're doing is creating real clarity and that's compelling and that's something that changes based on preparation, practice, and past experience. Okay. Now, just to pivot. When I went through your book, Can I Have Your Attention? You know, I'm just one guy, one reader. One thing that was interesting to me, and I'm wondering if this was deliberate based on different personality styles. You know, if, if, let's say there are four core personality styles who would pick up your book. Each of those four styles are going to probably 
have different reactions in terms of what resonates. So, you know, one thing that resonated with me was the spectrum of people you quoted in your book. So you quoted uh, Charlie Munger. And it's a powerful quote, right? Show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. You know, so so a lot of people would apply that to literal um, capitalism and and uh, driving results, but you could apply that mindset to communication. Like if I demonstrate to you as a client that I have undivided attention, and, and you consciously say to yourself, "Well, this guy is really focused." on me, you're going to be a lot more open in what you share with me. Correct? That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. And I think so much so, of the distraction... Oh, yeah, jump in. No, no, go ahead. Finish that thought. Yeah, I, so much of the dis- the feelings of distraction are... Um, what it does is it, it keeps us from understanding the value of our attention, right? That, like that I've got too many emails. I need to check in on the markets. I need to figure out um, how to reply to this. I got to, I got to get an email that'll make four people out of 4,000 open it. And then we jump into this meeting and we're like, we're like, okay, now I got to get into the meeting. But every minute before that, every second before that, my attention's in a hundred places. And it's in that we fail to recognize that like, there's no more valuable use of our attention than giving all of it to prepare for a major client opportunity and then to be fully there. And so making sure, you know, that Charlie Munger quote is like, that's uh, distraction can keep us focused on activity without helping us to understand the, the outcome we're seeking. Right. Yeah. Okay. So another gentleman you quoted who I have a lot of respect for uh, was Frank Lloyd Wright. So uh, I didn't even know who he was until I read the fountainhead by uh, Anne Rand, one of my favorite novels. And then I came to the realization that that was at least partially inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright. And it's interesting, on my bucket list, for lack of a better term, I want to get to Falling Water, one of the most iconic buildings in America, in, in Pennsylvania. I've been close, but I've never actually gotten there. But if I remember correctly, his quote was, that walls and rooms are fascist, but windows create energy or something like that. And <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so my thought was when I read that, and I'm, again, I'm trying to literally apply that as a symbol on communication is you don't want to close things off you want there to be energy flow. So, so in order to be, to get someone to be forthright, you know, an agenda in a meeting with a prospective client shows them a window on what to expect. There's no mystery. Like they, they know what's going to happen and they see what's at the top and then they see what's at the bottom of the agenda. And then they see there's a lot of interesting points in between. That's bound to open them up to keep the energy flowing in the conversation. Is that 
Am I forcing the analogy here or am I on the right track there? Well, I, I, both things are tr totally true and they definitely relate to one another. Um, so I, I think in that sense, it completely works. I, you know, the, the two things that where I more directly was really applying the Frank Lloyd right piece is, is just a, is a recognition that space does shape um, what we pay attention to and, and, you know, windows, literally windows by seeing further out onto the horizon, you, your brain goes to more creative modes. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, it, but then on, you know, when we think about providing someone with the ability to see where we're going to see further out than, rather than being locked in is, is the ultimate respect of like, Hey, I'm, you know, you can now see the full picture of where we're going to put our attention and you can know that it's, that I'm, um, that we're moving at a pace, we're going somewhere, we're seeking a shared outcome, we're on the same page rather than like uh, a tendency in older, old school uh, financial advising. And a lot of sales was like, I'm going to shield you from everything but the current step. So you don't get to see, you have no visibility. You have to, that means you need me, right? Like you have to, you have to keep me along because you don't know where you're going without me. But by actually opening it up and saying, hey, this is the full picture. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm like, I have nothing to hide and I am on the same page as you. And, um, and, and now we're, now we can have a real dialogue. Well, it's interesting because uh, I often say that my favorite restaurants, uh, they all have an open kitchen. Like you, it's all right there. And there's an energy because I mean, there's flames. It's a beehive of activity. There's yelling, there's things being dropped, and yet there it is. And so I, as a metaphor, I say to our clients, be completely open, be completely client-centered. Even in terms of your, like with a prospective client, you have an agenda, but you have no hidden agenda. Like, if I meet you for the first time and you've been referred to me by an accountant and you've gone through the initial stages of my fit process, but we're literally face to face for the first time. I'm going to, as Stephen Covey would say, begin with the end in mind and say to you, Kurt, Hey, just so you know, right up front, nobody has to make any decisions at the end of this initial meeting. I wanted to meet you and get to know you and understand your situation and help determine if I think we're going to be a good fit. I want you to walk away from this meeting feeling like it was productive and then have some time to absorb what we've discussed. And then after I've met with my team, I'm going to contact you in 48 hours and let you know how we feel. Is that fair? Like that, that openness, that future pacing, pointing, like you said, through the window. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just asking for your validation. That's got to open up and disarm someone to be a lot more forthcoming yeah. in the communication. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting to me is the analogy that you used around the restaurant is there's a hidden factor here that I think is um, really foundational to even the way that your the other interaction takes place with uh, with a client and that's that you see people when the windows are down or when the windows 
or they rather mm. well like i'm a i don't if the if the food's not good i'm not gonna be happy but if i see people human beings making that food then i at least i'm already primed and i already understand like hey this is coming from someone who you know who's important who has a life who i don't want to um ruined because it's i i say something like oh these this food's terrible you know the more right. connected to humans the better we are in terms of the way we care for one another and so like what you're doing in that conversation is you're saying you're not a number right you're saying you're a person mm-hmm. and i and i we have to make decisions about who we give our um who we connect to and who we have a relationship with professionally or personally and and i'm going to respect you enough to not set unreasonable expectations that no human would want, right? So really at its core, like this, um, this celebration of what it means to um, work with other humans and what humans need from other humans, which is why I think any financial advisor worried about robo-advisors doesn't understand their value proposition because it's incredibly powerful when you do. Well, quite candidly, I mean, that's a pretty enlightened comment and I've never gone that far um, with respect to the concept of the open kitchen, but I completely agree. There's almost like this unspoken reciprocity. It's no, it's not unlike being at a grocery store and they offer you a free sample and, you know, you, you take the bait and you eat it and you're thinking, you know, I feel that much more compelled to reciprocate to this human who's standing here, uh, handing out free samples. I mean, I don't want really what they have, but now I feel a connection (laughs) Uh, that's interesting. I, I never thought of it that way. Um, totally. Okay. So, so another uh, interesting person you referenced in, can I have your attention? And this <laughs> one I really like too, because it's not typical in our space. And of course I'm referring to Henry David Thoreau, who you know, obviously Walden and, you know, many works, pretty neat person, of course, not without flaws, but a pretty, pretty interesting guy. And again, I want to make sure my recall is right, but I think you spoke to the concept of we are tools of our tools. So, so yeah, I've got my comments on that, but I want to hear your perspective. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you, you nailed it, and it's it's a reminder that some of the questions that are being asked today around our technology are not new ones, and that Henry David Thoreau was saying that this was the great danger of technology a long time ago, that we would become tools of our tools. And, uh, you know, when we look at technology today, we are very pro technology. Technology is the solution in many cases to the overwhelm and the access and um, it it can become a filtering mechanism. But the problem today is that we've, we've really handed over, if we're not careful, we've handed over responsibility to algorithms and tried to keep up with technology rather than leveraging it. Meaning the technology is accelerating. So we try to accelerate with it. But the problem is we we can't do, we can only do so many things in a day. We're not infinite. The problem is like we, technology allows us to escape where we are, space. It allows us to, you know, it doesn't matter where you are for what you're doing. Like clearly you can work on a beach. You can not work at work. Like, um, and that's great because it allows us to, you know, when I'm in an elevator and someone's having a 
yelling match. I can put on my earphones and I can escape, right? Um, but at the same time, we are bound. We're in, you know, we're space shapes who we are and where we are. We're limited to one space. And so I think it's just really critical for us to understand that um, what technology is versus what we are. And as long as we live in that confusion, then we'll end up allowing technology to be the ones that drive who we are becoming. Yeah, it's interesting. And you're right. Um, there's this, it's called Jevons paradox, which says that often a solution to a problem can create another problem. It's not unlike, you know, in some medicine, the cure can do more damage than the disease. And I see the pendulum around technology uh, maybe going too far to commoditize the advisor, but if they embrace it and and don't um, don't get sort of lazy or let entropy seep in, like for example, I've seen many advisors who used to do quarterly portfolio reviews for their top clients. And we've rebranded those, so it's not a rehash of something that's happened. It's more of a panoramic approach, so they call them strategy and tactical meetings. So we're going to invest the past into the future and make mid-course corrections, and that's all part of our process. So now it becomes this fluid and dynamic exercise. But many advisors have said to their clients, we'll do one of those face-to-face. And three, via Skype, I'm going to give you the gift of time yep. so you don't have to come down here and then drive back home. And it's, it's not always worked out well for every advisor because some just kind of show up onto the Skype call and kind of wing it, as opposed to sending the agenda in advance, following the agenda through the Skype call, and then sending an email summary of what was discussed framed in form, right? So you think of form. We didn't just talk about money. We also talked about family, occupation, and recreational updates and aspirations and accomplishments. And, and just started to really imprint some of that value methodically. I'll tell you, that's been a game changer. But, but I guess the point is, it's a tool, uh, but not one that uh, created complacency for anyone. It was literally an elevation in the client experience and in the efficiency and best practices of the advisor. And I'm just curious as to what your comment is there. Yeah, so it's it, it's it's complicated, like so many things. So demands, you know, demanding someone to enter your space, to get in a car, to drive down, when there's nothing about being in that space that makes it special, is is a, a, a pretty um, pretty hard proposition moving forward. So, like going to digital does say, like you said, it says I respect you, right? It it, it says if you say come into my office, what that says is. Um, your time doesn't mean as much to me unless being in that office is a unique experience. Like it's like the, the space is set up to be unique. What happens there can't happen digitally. I think 
or there's generational differences. So certain generations want that, but like as we move towards younger generations that are gonna be clients and they already should be. Um, so that's part one, but here's the other side. Um, when you're into a digital experience, when it's a screen, like what you've just done is you've eliminated a large percentage of what it is that would keep people's attention, keep them focused, make them feel a deep connection with you. And so, yeah, we gotta do several things differently because of it, if we're gonna go that route. One, we gotta be shorter. We, um, we have to, uh, use our non-verbals that we do have even more effectively. We need to provide information, like you said, visual information ahead of time that helps guide the conversation, gives them space to get their head around it first, and sending it afterwards. Like, the, so yeah, it's about you know we think we're going to save time. It's not going to save us any time, um, for sure. It's but it may be the right move, given you know the demands that and the expectations people have. But if you do it, you have to create a lot more space around it to create a deeper engagement with that material in order for it to have the value when you're on that call. Okay, so that's a perfect segue. So when I read in uh, your book, Can I Have Your Attention? You made reference to the distinction around uh, being in the ocean in either a raft or a sailboat which would you prefer? And of course, the great metaphor uh, and analogy. For me, I just come full circle back to the signal to noise ratio and your comment about cultivating focus. So being deliberate around focus and ensuring that the client tunes out the noise and tunes in your signal and being process driven, like I say to our advisors, you should carve out one hour a day to work on your business. Yeah. Not in your business reacting. Like literally at the end of your voicemail, it should say, I return phone calls from 3 to 4 p.m. every day. If your matter's urgent, please contact my CSA. Okay. The bottom of emails, it should say, I respond to emails between 3 and 4 p.m. every day. If your matter is urgent, please email so-and-so. And so, -and -so. And so, so the, the transmission of that message imprints to all of your community, I value my time. I run my business like a business. But what you got me thinking about is that also will foster an ability to cultivate focus, both in me and in my clients. What are your thoughts on that as a best practice? Those are wonderful. In fact, I'm, I'm going to write them down because I think that just really tactical ways of, of setting parameters are, are, are the critical element. So there's two aspects that you're addressing that are core to cultivating focus here. Um, one is that uh, you have to be unavailable. Um, open access is the enemy of ingenuity, of creativity, of strategy, of prioritization. If you are always available, which is the classic perspective, like, hey, I always have to be available to my clients. I need to have an open door policy if I'm a leader. Like, if you're always available, you're never fully focused on anything. You're allowing everyone else to dictate what you pay attention to. And every interruption um, is, you know, causes the next uh, or excuse me, every external interruption makes you more likely to interrupt yourself because an external interruption is, oh, shoot, you should be paying attention to something else. 
oh, I should pay this mm. for something else. So, you know, you, you end up in this constant interrupted state where you never are able to zoom in. You never have the ability to have the space that you need. So part one is, is you got to raise the boundaries and be unavailable at times and set. And then part two is you have to communicate very clearly what expectations are, because what happens is um, no one talks about the ground rules. And so the um, hidden and unwritten rules end up dictating the pace of communication and engagement. And so, you know, one of the big factors we do, and we call this creating an attention alliance or having a, a compact of communication rules is, is um, setting a channel for emergencies. Like you said, you said, hey, contact this person, or, you know, we do it with us. It's like, hey, if it's an emergency, you're going you're gonna to call me. No one else likes to call. People don't call. Otherwise, emails aren't an emergency. Texts aren't an emergency. You know, Microsoft Teams is an emergency. And now I'm freed to be present and to turn those push notifications off so that I can zoom in. If I say I'm just never going to be available or I'm not even going to set ground rules for how people can get me when they have a real need, then what that'll do is eventually I'll, I'll run back to being available because you, you're not going to win clients if you're never answering their messages. Well, that's that's a great uh, insight, and I'm glad you're you're validating. And you know, listen, Kurt. I mean, I think I we could keep going for a while. Let's let's call this 1.0 for now. I'm sure we're going to reconnect and go a little deeper. I I wanted nothing else to convey to you that um, I took this call seriously and prepared, and that's really a testament to the quality of your work because I. I did start, and I, I, I underestimated the book, Can I Have Your Attention? Because, you know, I'm busy, and there's a lot of things competing for my attention. But once I got rolling, uh, not only did I love the insights, but it also made me think and expanded my thinking on being deliberate and methodical about both sides of communication, the recipient and the transmitter, like the person who's trying to engage someone. So uh, kudos uh, on your book and your work. And uh, I hope uh, this is valuable and I, I do look forward to going deeper. But for now, I just want to thank you for your time and uh, for a very, very productive conversation. Thank you for having me on and, and thank you for such an encouraging um, way to end it. it. It means the world to me. I, we I wrote a, we wrote the book knowing that there's something ironic saying people don't have the uh, ability to focus so we're going to write a book to make it and so um, it's it's very meaningful and, and encouraging the goal was to provide um, in in a format that people could digest real solutions real understanding to a challenge that most of us feel and no one has to be convinced of so I'm I'm encouraged thank you and, and excited about the future conversations where we dive deeper into this stuff. Thank you for listening to this actionable podcast. We also post from the field videos weekly on Duncan's LinkedIn and Pareto Systems YouTube channel. And we post everything we do on our homepage at paretosystems.com. Make it a great day.